Let's, uh, let's uh, come back to our seats. Well, friends, what do you think is worth dying for? What do you think is worth dying for? What are you willing to die for? So I want you to think about that in your mind for a moment. What is worth dying for? Well, of course, there are all sorts of different ideas of what is worth dying for. For some, it might be for country, for nation. Just 16 days ago, we had Anzac Day. We remembered the Anzacs who sacrificed their life, who paid the highest price for their nation, for their country, so that we can enjoy what we enjoy today. Well, for some people, it might be for freedom. Freedom. William Wallace, Mel Gibson in Braveheart, fighting, dying for the freedom of his people. Or it could just be for other people. Now, this is one American author, Ayn Rand. She said this. I could die for you, but I couldn't and wouldn't live for you. What do you think about that? Or it could be for love. People die for love, don't they? Jared Kintz, he's another author. This was what he said. I'm willing to die for the woman I love. I just want to take 75 years to do it. Well, people die for all sorts of things, all sorts of people. People die for husbands, for wives, for kids, whatever. But when you come to think about this question, there's in fact, I suspect, not many things or not many people in life that you will be willing to die for, that you would think is worth dying for. You see, if you think about it, I wouldn't die for a lot of things. I wouldn't die for plants, I wouldn't die for trees, I wouldn't die for a dog, I wouldn't die for any animal. I wouldn't die for money, I wouldn't die for a career. And I suspect you might be the same. Now, the reason why I started with this question is because what you're willing to die for, in a sense, shows what you're living for. What you're willing to die for shows what you're living for. Now, do you recognise this guy? Who is he? Yes, Martin Luther King Jr. He was a Christian man, a disciple and a follower of Jesus. He was a Baptist minister. Nothing against the Baptists. We love the Baptists. I'm an ex-Baptist myself. He was an activist. He was a leader in the African-American civil rights movement. He was someone who achieved so much in his life that was cut short. Well, this was what he said, Martin Luther King. I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. What do you think about that statement? If a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. You see, what he's saying there is in a sense saying, if you've got nothing that is worth dying for, there's nothing worth living for. If there's nothing worth dying for, there's nothing worth living for. And so when we come to our passage today, we're challenged along these lines. You see, what we see in our passage today, that these words are perhaps one of the most confronting words in all of Scripture. They're one of the most challenging words in all of Scripture. Words that challenges our deepest loves. Words that challenges the things that we hold dear. And so what Jesus does in our passage is, is in a sense, he does three things. He makes clear to us that he is the one who is worthy of our loyalty. That's the first thing. 
And he makes clear to us that he is the one who is worthy of our love. The second thing. And finally he makes clear that he is the one who is worthy of our whole life. Our loyalty, our love and our life. And it is him who is worth dying for. And so let's look at our passage. So firstly, he is worthy of our loyalty. That is, he is worthy of our complete allegiance. He is worthy of our acknowledgement of him before men, before all those around us. And this passage tells us why. You see, if we are loyal to Jesus, he promises that he will be loyal to us. He will acknowledge us when it matters most, when it counts most, before his Father in heaven. And so let me ask you, uh, uh, encourage you to open up your Bibles, look at chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 with me. So Jesus says here, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now what we must see here in what Jesus says here is in a sense he turns our world upside down. If you consider these words, he turns our world upside down because Jesus in a sense says here, it doesn't actually matter what this world thinks about you. All those people around you, all those sitting next to you, it doesn't actually matter ultimately what they think about you. Your friends, your family, your neighbour, your peers, your, even your enemies. It doesn't matter what they ultimately think about you. In fact, it doesn't even matter what you think about yourself. Because Jesus, in a sense, says in these verses, it's what I think of you that really matters. It's what I think of you that really matters. And I will think well of you if you are loyal to me. I will be loyal to you. I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. You see, I will acknowledge you at the time, at the moment that counts most. Now, if you think about those words, they're extremely profound, aren't they? Extremely profound. You see, we live in a world where we're bogged down, where we're trapped into seeking the approval of others. We're trapped into pleasing others. We're we're wanting others to think well of us. I mean, even as I'm standing up here preaching, I can be thinking, oh, what's that man with glasses down the back thinking about me now? Is he thinking that I'm... I'm good looking or am I smart, am I walking right? You see, it's crippling when we think about what others are thinking about us. It's paralysing. We can be so concerned, so stressed out about what others think about us. And if you think about it, it's an unending pursuit that leads nowhere. So how do we get out of this rut of being so stressed out and concerned about what others think about us? Well, if you've been reading, watching TV and uh, looking at what pop psychology says, what does pop psychology say? Well, they say, don't worry about what others think about you. Just do your best. Just know yourself. Be true to yourself. Value yourself. Believe in yourself. That's what you need. Love yourself. That's what really matters. Forget what others think about you. You need to love yourself. And that's how you'll make it in life. Believe in yourself. And those are the things we see in these feel-good movies, aren't they? They're the turning point in the movie. Uh, uh, Whoever it is, so concerned about what others are thinking about them and the turning point, someone says, just believe in yourself. And the movie changes and you feel good and it's so predictable. You know, the man of steel or or how to train your dragon. 
I was going to say chick flicks here, but they never feel good. They're just, you know, <laughs> they just don't work. But you see, these might appear comforting words. Just believe in yourself. Just have a high view of yourself. As long as you believe in yourself, as long as I believe in myself, then that's all that matters. But you see, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. Because it's not what we think about ourselves that's important. It's actually what Jesus thinks of us that's most important. Because he is the one that matters most. He is the one who matters most. And he is the one who will give his loyalty to us if we are loyal to him here on earth. He is the one who will acknowledge us if we acknowledge him here on earth. And so Jesus is worthy of our loyalty. But next we also see that he's also worthy of our love, our complete, our full, our comprehensive love. And that's why when Jesus came, he brought division. He divides even the closest of families. Have a look at verses 34 and 35 with me. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Just think about that. What a strange thing for the Prince of Peace to say. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Isn't that strange? It's Mother's Day, but we're hearing this. Now, that's not how we would normally think about Jesus, is it? In fact, it's not even how this world would think about Jesus, whether they believe in him or not. You know, isn't Jesus meant to be that man of peace, the one who came to bring peace on earth? Isn't that what Christmas is all about? We sing about it, peace on earth and mercy mile, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so why did Jesus say those words? Why did Jesus say, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword? Well, it's because he's worthy of our complete and utter love. And so what that means is this. It means that if Jesus is my Lord, if he is my Saviour, if he is my king, then I must love him more than my own family. And if he is my lord, my king, my master, my saviour, then I must love him more than even myself. And when you love Christ more than your family, when you love Christ more than even yourself, it creates division. And so we see here, to be worthy of Jesus is to love him above family. To love him above family, isn't that so strange, coming from Jesus? But why did Jesus put these words so strongly, so in a, such a confronting way? Now, I'm sure this is true of not just me, but of you as well. I don't actually think there, there is anyone in this world that I love more than my own family, than my wife and kids. You know, even if I have been hurt by my family over and over and over again by, by Yvonne and my kids, I'll be willing to forgive over and over and over again because they're family. They're the ones I love most. I'm willing to do anything for them. And if it means even giving up my life to lay it down so that they might live, I would not hesitate. I'll take a bullet for them any day. I'll take on a pit bull. I'll take on a pussycat. I'll take them all on for my family because I love them. And I'm sure that's true for you too. But you see, this is the whole point of why Jesus put it this way. You see, for the vast majority of us, 
There's nothing, there's no one in fact, that we love more than our families. But Jesus says here, even your families must take second place when next to him. To be worthy of Jesus means loving him above your families. And so we see this in verse 37. Have a look. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what does this mean? Well, it does not mean this. It does not mean this. It does not mean if you're not getting along with your mother-in-law, you know, she's driving you nuts, she's driving you crazy, this is not permission to say, oh, I'm a Christian, I can hate her. I'm alright, I'm safe, I love Jesus more. You know, this passage gives me permission to hate. But it's not saying that. It's not saying that at all. It's saying if you love Jesus first, what that will mean is that it will mean that you'll love your mother-in-law more. You'll love her better because he'll put your love into perspective. And what this verse is, is not saying is if you're not relating well to your parents, it's not giving permission to say, oh, I'm a Christian. I don't need to obey my parents anymore. I don't need to honour them. I don't need to listen to them because I love Jesus more. In fact, I can hate my parents. It's not saying that again. You see, by loving Jesus first, it means that we continue to honour, to respect, to love our parents because we love Jesus more. We obey Jesus and that puts our love into perspective. And so this verse is not giving us permission to hate anyone. It's not giving us permission to neglect our responsibilities to our parents, to our kids, to anyone. But what it is saying is this, that Jesus must be our first love. He must take first place. And for many, that will cause division in the family. Now we have to come to understand how confronting these words were for those who first heard them. I mean, it's already confronting to us, but just imagine for families of the Middle East, the teachings of Jesus, when they heard that, they would have been crazy. It would have been shocking to hear what Jesus demanded from them. Because you see, for, for a Middle Eastern family, family comes first. It's just like in the Eastern culture, family comes first. Family ties in such cultures are extremely strong and that is still the way today in those cultures. And that's why, for example, in the Asian culture, which is the one I come from, you never address people who are older than you by their name. You address them by your relationship to them. You see, in the Western culture, you're all individuals. And so you're addressed by your name. You're an individual. But in the Eastern culture, you're not just an individual. You're part of a family unit. And so you're addressed by relationship. And so, for example, my younger two brothers, I've got two younger brothers, if they want to speak to me in a respectful, respectful way, they don't call me John. No, they're not allowed to, in fact. They call me by our relationship, that is, oldest brother. And they should know that, oldest brother, all the time. <laughs> or another example, when we have our family gatherings and we see our aunties and uncles, we don't address them by name. We, in fact, address them by auntie or uncle, but also by their rank. So it's first auntie or second auntie or third auntie. Uh, auntie. First uncle, second uncle and so forth. Or even at home. Some of you may have noticed this if you've visited our place. I don't call Yvonne Yvonne. 
If Yvonne gets in trouble, I'll call her Yvonne. <laughs> Doesn't happen. But I address Yvonne by our relationship. That is, she is the wife at home. I call her wife. Come here. No, I don't do it. <laughs> that's because that's how our relationship works. You address each other by the relationship. And you may have noticed this also in how we try to get our kids to address you if you know us. And so when, when, when we bring our kids over to your place or we see each other, if you are of my generation, that is, you're old but young, young at heart and you're older than me, if you're of my generation or older, then we get our kids to address you as auntie and uncle, not by name. And so that's how I've been brought up, very Australian, I know. But you see, in societies with tight social units, what you do as an individual does not just affect you. It doesn't just make you look good or bad. You see, in such a culture, it brings honour or shame to the family. And so even if you did something minor, just say you failed a test, it's not just like, oh, what a shame you failed. You know, just repeat it. In such a culture, if you failed a test, it will bring shame to the family. It will bring dishonour to the family name. And so you can understand why Jesus said what he did. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see, for families that are so tightly knit, when the gospel penetrates such a family, when, when someone becomes a Christian in such a family, that brings friction, that brings tension, that brings division. And this is often what you hear if you've read and heard and have friends who are from Islamic families, Islamic backgrounds. It's a big thing from, for anyone with a Muslim background to become a Christian. Often, you hear reports, they're often disowned by their family, they're rejected by their family, they're, they're seen as dead to the family. In fact, there's a report just this past week on Voice of the Martyrs, which is a, a website that, that supports the persecuted Christians around the world. Well, there was this report about a 10-year-old girl in Bahrain. She told her mother and her uncle that she believes in Jesus, just like her father. But as a result, she was beaten for that. You see, the gospel brings division. Jesus brought the sword. It's sad to hear that, isn't it? That these things do happen. But you see, this girl got her priorities right. She is considered worthy of Jesus because she loves Jesus more. Now, to be worthy of Jesus is not only to love him above our families, but it's also to love him above even ourselves. And that's what Jesus gets on to next. But of course, if you think about this again, it's so foreign, it's so strange. How can we love Jesus, someone else, more than we love ourselves? Well, this is what we're taught to think, isn't it? Look at this quote. New York Times best-selling author Peter McWilliams. Who is more qualified to love you than you? So if you don't love you, who's going to love you? You must love yourself first. What about this? Lucille Ball, actress. Love yourself first and everything else falls into line. You really have to love yourself to get anything done in this world. So what do you think about this? I mean, this is pop culture. This is what we're led to believe. What does Jesus think? Well, in a sense, Jesus says the total opposite. Love him first and everything else will fall into line. Love him first and your life will be in perspective. 
You see, you have to deny yourself to be worthy of me. This is what we see in the next verse, verse 38. Have a look. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, it's worth trying to get this picture into our minds. What does it mean to take up your cross? What does that look like? Well, you see, in the Roman world, those who took up their cross, they were not taking up their suitcase and going to the airport off on holidays. Those who took up the cross were not those who took up their speedos and went to the beach for a swim. Those who took up their cross were not those who took up their, their diamond-encrusted crosses that were hanging around this thick gold chain that just bared weight upon their necks. No, it's not that stuff. You see, those who took up their cross were on the way to their crucifixion, carrying the crossbeam and paraded down the city streets that marked the end of any self-interest, that marked the end of any hope, that marked the end of life, that marked the end of any self-love. You see, that's what Jesus was on about. To be willing to carry the cross and to follow him is to love him more than we love ourselves. And so here we see Jesus is worthy of our loyalty. He's also worthy of our love. Love that should exceed that for our families and love that should exceed that for our, even ourselves. But now we must ask, why would anyone in their right mind do such a thing? Why would anyone love Jesus more than family? Why would anyone love Jesus more than we love ourselves? That's strange. Well, you see, when you count the costs, when you count the costs, you can see why that Jesus is not only worthy of our loyalty, he's not only worthy of our love, but he's also worthy of our whole life. You see, when you count the costs of following Jesus, what do you get? What's, how does it balance out? Well, on one side, it is costly to follow Jesus, isn't it? It's costly to be his disciple. It means that I must devote my whole life, my whole existence to him and his cause. I must love him. I must make sacrifices for him. I must be willing to be persecuted for him. I must never be ashamed of him. I must even be willing to die for his sake. I mean, that's a huge cost, isn't it, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. And many Christians have, in fact, paid that price. But you see, the cost goes both ways. You have to consider the other side. And so on the other hand, if you think about it, it's in fact more costly to not follow Jesus. It's more costly to not follow Jesus because what's the cost then? You see, we're told here in our following verse, you lose everything if you don't follow Jesus. You'll lose everything if you don't love him first. You'll lose your life even while you're finding your life. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so for those of you here who are not yet followers of Jesus, you really have to count the cost, don't you? It's a high cost to follow him, but it's a far higher cost to not follow him. You have to count the cost. Now, if we look again at this verse, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, this verse is not saying, go and lose your life for him in some silly way. 
It's not saying go and kill yourself and claim, oh, I'm dying for Jesus, I'm jumping off the pier. You see, that's stupid. That's not what this verse is saying. That's a waste of life. You see, what this verse is saying, that is to, to lose your life for him, that is to use your life, to expend your life, to exhaust your life for him and for his sake, even to the point of death. You see, he is the one who is worthy of us dying for and living for. And when we do, when you do do that, lose yourself for him, we in fact find ourselves. We find our true worth in God's eyes. We find our true identity in Christ. We find our value. We find life. And we gain a life that extends beyond the grave. You see, if I lose my life for him, then I actually have nothing to lose. If I lose my life for him, I've got nothing to lose. And that's why Jesus can make such ludicrous demands. You see, we were made for him. We were made by him and for him. No one else. And that's why he's worthy of our loyalty. He's worthy of our love. And he's also worthy of our whole life. So what do you think about what Martin Luther King said? I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes some sense. If there's nothing worth dying for, then there's really nothing worth living for. And so, if Jesus is the one you think is worth dying for, then that actually shows that it is him you live for. So if in your mind you're thinking it's worth dying for Jesus, that shows that it's worth living for him and that you are living for him. But you see, not everyone gets this. And I understand this. We live in a secular society. Not everyone gets this. And not everyone is able to do this. And not everyone is willing to do this, if you think about it, because it still sounds so ludicrous to give my life, my existence to this man. That's a bit much. But you see, not everyone will get it. You will not get this unless you come to understand the verse we looked at. Verse 38. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now notice what Jesus says there. You see, we follow the one who has first carried his cross. We follow the one who has gone before us. We follow the one who lived a life and died a death on the cross. And for whom? For you. For you and for me. You see, Jesus counted you worthy of his loyalty. Jesus counted you worthy of his life. Jesus counted you worthy of his love. What did he do? He died for you. He went to the cross. He went before us. He died for us. And so when you come to understand that, you can see why Jesus is worthy of our everything. Every living cell in us, he's worthy of it all. To think that I am worthy of Jesus, the Son of God, dying for me. If I understand that, it all makes sense. Of course he's worthy of my whole life. You see, how can I not give him my complete loyalty? How can I not give him my highest love? How can I not give him my whole life? And it is this that we should understand. And we understand this 
it means that there shouldn't ever be any complacent Christians. If you understand this, it should mean that there should never be any consumer Christians. If you understand this, it should mean that there should never be any lazy Christians. But there should only be one type of Christian, and that is the one who lives and dies for Christ. Now, of course, that will look different for each one of us. But let me briefly share with you just two. At a previous church of mine, there was a young man came out of high school, went into uni. Young man, non-Christian, came from a non-Christian background, but he became a Christian. But you see, he received a lot of flack from home. There was division, like what Jesus talked about. He was disowned by his family. I mean, this happens in Australia. He loved Jesus more. And this man who's now doing ministry apprenticeship, he's training for the ministry, but yet he loves Jesus more. Another quick example, one of my previous ministers, he came from a wealthy family. He did come from a wealthy family. He studied law, became a lawyer, and he was um, next in line to inherit the company. He was to become a multimillionaire. He gave that up. His father could not understand why he would do that thing. He gave it up became a minister. You see, this will look different for each one of us, but there's only one type of Christian, that is the one who would live for Christ and die for him. So now we come back to Martin Luther King. You see, this was a man who knew this. He knew this. But on the 4th of April in 1968, he was assassinated. You see, all he wanted to do in life was to do the will of God, and that's what he said. I just want to do God's will. But that man, he lived and he died for Christ. Christ was worthy of his life and his death. And that's because he understood that he was worthy of Christ dying for him. Christ considered him worthy to go to the cross for. So though he tragically died, he lived a complete, confident life that despite the end, He knows that Jesus, his Lord and Saviour, would never disown him before his Father in heaven. And one of his favourite hymns, one that was sung at his funeral, expresses his confidence well. And I'll end with this. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Are you worthy of Jesus? Well, the Gospel tells us that you are. He died for you. But is Jesus worthy of you? Well, I hope so and I'll pray so. So let's pray.